All right, good evening, everyone. I want to welcome you back to our sixth and final presentation for Three Angels, One Message. This has been quite the journey. We have covered so many different things. We have looked at wonderful topics. We have looked at concerning topics. But most importantly, we have seen Jesus in the midst of all of it. And I, for one, have been encouraged by it. I hope you have too. I hope if you're watching on Facebook, uh, you have been encouraged with these as well. Uh, that maybe if this is the first time you've studied this in depth in this particular singular passage in the Bible, Revelation 14, verses 6 and onwards, uh, that you will have walked away with something. You will have walked away with an increased faith. You will have walked away with an increased appreciation for the book of Revelation. Maybe that's not where you typically go. Uh, the epistles from Paul are a favorite. Uh, Old Testament narratives are a favorite. The Gospels are, of course, one of my favorites. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we should stay away from Revelation. We've seen that it's rich. We've seen that it's deep. And we've seen that it's important and vital for right now. So tonight we're going to finish this up. We're going to have a slightly shorter, uh, probably noticeably shorter compared to the last two presentations. Tonight titled just simply, Don't Worry, Look to Jesus. But let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a beautiful Sabbath afternoon. We thank you for the rest that we could enjoy, the fellowship with family and with friends. And so we pray now that you would be with us as we close out today. Be with us as we look one more time at these important uh, passages and words from your inspired writings, the Bible. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One of the more significant events of World War I was the sinking of the Cunardoshian liner, the RMS Lusitania. It occurred on Friday, May 7, 1915, as Germany waged submarine warfare against the United Kingdom. Good evening, come on in. Great Britain, Ireland, and the British Royal Navy had blockaded Germany. The ship was identified and torpedoed by a German U-boat, and it sank in only 18 minutes. The vessel went down 11 miles off of Kinsale, Ireland, killing 1,198 people and leaving 761 survivors. Uh, it's pretty tragic, really, by any measurement. The sinking turned public opinion in many countries against Germany. This contributed to the American entry into World War I, and it became an iconic symbol in military recruiting campaigns as to why the war was even being fought to begin with. Uh, I guess this would be World War I's Pearl Harbor, if you will. A story associated with this disaster has relevance for Bible-believing Christians, especially for Seventh-day Adventists living in last days of human history. Lord Joseph Duveen was the head of a prestigious art firm in the United States. In 1915, he planned to send one of his experts to England to examine some ancient pottery. He booked passage for his associate on the Lusitania. The German embassy had issued a warning that the ocean liner might be torpedoed. Uh, Lord Devine wanted to call off the trip, 
I can't take the risk of you being killed, he said to his young pottery expert. Generally, if a country that is waging war with so many other nations says, uh, I might torpedo that boat if it <laughs> comes this way, uh, one should probably listen. Uh, so you can hardly fault Lord Duveen for not wanting his young associate on that ship with the looming threat. Don't worry, the young man replied. I am a strong swimmer. When I read what was happening in the Atlantic, I began hardening myself by spending time every day in a tub of ice. Uh, if, if you've ever done, this is, I mean, that's common for like athletes. You know, they're sore, they get in that ice uh, bathtub at the end and it, it you know, helps with the inflammation and so on. Um, I could not do that, uh, at least not initially. This man was taking the initiative though. He says that at first I could stand it for only a few minutes, but this morning I stayed in that tub for nearly two hours. A long time. I don't know how you kept that ice frozen. Seems like it would have melted off and become a little bit more tepid. But he was conditioning himself, he says. Naturally, Lord Duveen laughed. It sounded preposterous, but the young man sailed. The Lusitania was torpedoed, we know. The amazing thing is that the young man was rescued after five hours in the chilly waters of the Atlantic, still in excellent condition. Just as this young man took the warnings seriously and prepared himself in advance for the tough times that were coming, so Jesus gives a message in advance to prepare us for his soon return. We've studied them. It has been our focus for these previous five presentations. The three angels' message, flying in midair with the everlasting gospel to preach to everybody on the planet, is especially designed by Christ to prepare each one of us for his second coming. Uh, it is. Uh, and it's, it's a way of preparing us in the most vital of senses whose allegiance uh, do, do we pledge ourselves to? Is it to God in Christ, or is it to something else? These end-time messages are heaven's last appeals to a dying planet. Um, I'm going to be honest, I'm, I'm kind of ready for the planet to kick the bucket. Uh, if it's dying, it might as well get over it, because I'm sick of the results of sin. I'm tired of it. Uh, the hurricane, as they are I'm sure they will be finding lost loved ones as they clean up from this hurricane. As we have earthquakes and we have riots that turn violent, as we have the various increases in crime and overdoses and loneliness and depression, all of it comes to an end when Jesus returns. Come, Lord Jesus, is my cry. But before then, we have to listen to God's last appeal. We ignore them at our own peril. They come to us from God's heart of divine love, and to casually set them aside or to treat them with careless indifference is to risk eternal loss. We are not playing around with light semantics or hyperbole with this, my friends. It is this important. Paul, writing to the church in Thessalonica, writes this. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day, that would be the day of Christ's return, that this day should overtake you as a thief. 
You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. There is much talk in evangelical Christianity about Christ's return coming as a thief. Paul is telling us that we should not be caught as a thief. Christians should know when it's coming. Christians should be looking for his coming. Christians should be prepared for Christ's coming so that it doesn't catch us as a thief. The Christians who are looking for Jesus to come as a thief are the Christians who aren't looking at all. That's what this amounts to. We have no excuse, Paul says. We are not of the night. Uh, We should not be asleep. We should be prepared for it. These messages help us do that. They should be a wake-up call. If you have found yourself spiritually slumbering and these messages have been that ringing in your ears, wake up and pay attention. Praise God for these messages. We should thank Him for it. They are of little use if we hit the snooze button and carelessly dismiss them. They are of little use if we ignore them. They are of little use if they do not radically change our lives. We read this from Testimonies, Volume 8, commenting on the nearness of Christ's return and the importance of being prepared. The end is very near. We who know the truth should be preparing for what is soon to break upon the world as an overwhelming surprise. Note that the surprise breaks upon the world. We who are prepared are not going to be caught as if we were overwhelmingly surprised. That's for them, not for us, she says. Well, how do we do that? Jesus in John 17, 17 says, you sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. That's where we start our preparation. We start by digging into the truth of God's word. He also says, and you shall know the truth And then the truth shall make you free. I have heard people say that it's better that I don't read the Bible so then I can claim the bliss of ignorance. God winks at us in our moments of ignorance. Well, my friends, if you choose to be ignorant, you are choosing the opposite of freedom. If you choose the ignorance, then you are choosing to be what the Bible says is a slave to sin rather than a bondservant to Christ. Because when you are linked up with Jesus, only then can you truly be free. Because the truth that we find in Him is liberating. It's restful. It's peaceful. It says, I've forgiven you. And not only that, but I've cleansed you from the unrighteousness. The truth that we find in Jesus, the truth that we've studied through these passages, that we've seen that the gospel permeates each of these angels' messages, is that it, it... It will bring us to a place where we can have hope in something beyond this world. We can have something higher than us. But what it also means is that these messages don't leave room for compromise. They don't. Because we either have the truth as it is in Jesus or we don't have truth at all. 
we've looked at Babylonian truth, and that's really truth mixed with error, compromised truth, confusion. These messages appeal to us to decide for Christ and not falsehood. Truth, not error. Scripture, not tradition. The teachings of God's word, not the traditions of men. And the freedom of the lamb, not the coercion of the beast. That's what these messages call us to. When you have allied yourself to Christ, not turned aside by any means, but wholly consecrated to him and his service, then you are proudly displayed as one of his saints. And God wants to show you off. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. In your own way, when you are found among these people, in your own way, you will pick up the banner long held by faithful Christians throughout history. You don't have to be the street corner preacher or the the evangelist who stands on the stage. You don't have to be the writer just going at it for hundreds and hundreds of pages to be published and scattered abroad like the leaves in autumn. If that's not you, that's okay. Maybe you're a prayer warrior. Maybe you're someone who serves and you, you like to rake leaves as a gift to someone else free of charge because then you can tell them about how God saved you free of charge. In your own way, when you are counted among the saints, you will pick up the banner long held by faithful Christians throughout history. And in your own way, you will add your voice to the proclamation chorus. You don't have to be like someone else. Be like you. That's enough for God. And he wants to proudly put you on display. Truths long obscured by the darkness of error and tradition, including the true Bible Sabbath, will be proclaimed to the world just before the return of our Lord. God's people are identified as a body of Christ-centered believers, filled with the faith of Jesus, who lovingly keep his commandments, including the fourth one, the Sabbath. God's people, though, will not be proclaiming the gospel alone. God's people will not be facing persecution alone. God will move mightily among his people to combat the enemy of souls because there's going to come a time when God will say enough to that enemy. Enough. You've ruled long enough, sir. That's what God will say to Satan. You see, the three angels of Revelation 14 are joined by another in Revelation 18. Revelation 18, this angel gives power to the proclamation of the three angels so that the earth is lighted with the glory of God. Revelation 18 focuses on the major events leading up to the climax of human history and the final ultimate triumph of the gospel. Let's look at these Briefly, Revelation 18 and verse 1, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven with great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. Illuminated, mighty, powerful was this angelic host. The angel comes down from the glorious presence of God in the throne room of the sanctuary. 
commissioned to proclaim God's last message of mercy and to warn the inhabitants of the earth what is coming upon this planet. If we look just for a moment about this great authority, the great authority here in this verse comes from the New Testament Greek word excusia. Excusia. Uh, Jesus uses this word, this very word, excusia, in the Gospel of Matthew in connection with sending out the disciples. Let's see how Jesus uses it then. Matthew 10.1, when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power, excusia, over sicknesses, uh, other maladies and cripplings, but hear this, and over the evil spirits, so they could cast them out of the men and women possessed by the devil. In other words, God sends his disciples out with the divine power to be victorious in the battle between good and evil. Satan and his demonic forces could not stand before the disciples because God, because Jesus had given them his excusia, his great authority, his holy power. And so when they said, get out of her in the name of Jesus Christ, or get out of him, the spirits obeyed. They didn't have a choice. They could not stand up to the authority from on high. In Matthew 28, 18 and 19, he once again takes up this word, excusia, as he sends out his disciples, but this time he sends them everywhere, because that is the great commission. Everywhere, with all authority in heaven and on earth, to go and to make disciples of all nations. Filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, going forth with the authority of the risen living Christ, the New Testament church lighted the earth with the glory of God. In a few short years, the disciples had proclaimed the gospel in the then known world. We know, we know that there were civilizations in, in far off Asia and South America and I'm certain North America at that point. In terms of the scope of the Christian movement, in a couple of short years, the Christian faith had gone throughout the mightiest empire on the planet at that time. The seat of development at that time, Western Europe, uh, the Middle East, and then up into the Roman Empire. That's what we mean by the then-known world. Colossians 1.23, Paul makes this clear. At the end time, the Holy Spirit will be poured out in unprecedented power. The gospel will rapidly be spread to the ends of the earth. What we, will, what we did see back then will be repeated again right before Jesus comes back. That same excusia, that same authority is going to be given to God's people today as we take up that banner and proclaim the gospel like the disciples did. <coughs> Thousands will be converted in a day. God's grace and truth will impact the entire planet. Well, if this is true... And it is, if it is true, and it is, 
It is not wise for us to open our hearts to receive, or is it not wise for us to open our hearts to receive the outpouring of the Spirit to finish the work of God on earth? Uh, Again, aren't we tired of Satan wreaking havoc amongst God's people? Would you like to help move it along and tie it up with a bow? God wants you to join him in this. Is it not wise to ask Jesus to take anything out of our lives that would hinder this outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Whatever it is. And everybody usually has at least one thing that we can, we can self-reflect on and say, I'd kind of like that scrubbed. Could a magic eraser be taken to it and Mr. Clean applied? Well, spiritually speaking, we understand. Is it not wise to seek God for the heart cleansing necessary to receive the latter reign of the Spirit in all his fullness? The great controversy between good and evil in the universe is about God's honor. The only reason we care about worship is because it honors God when we worship him. You can't divorce them. It is about God's honor his reputation. Satan, as a rebellious angel, declared that God was unjust, that he demands worship, but he gives little in return. The evil one declares that God's law is arbitrary, restricting our freedom and limiting our joy, and people pick up those same accusations today verbatim, and they hurl them heavenward all over again. It hasn't stopped just because time has passed. In fact, there are just now more people on the planet to pick up the chorus. But the cross, Jesus' self-sacrificing condescension from heaven to earth as a baby, a life serving others, a ministry directing minds heavenward, finally outstretched hands and bleeding uh, wrists and, and feet and Uh, brow, the cross, that old rugged cross, uh, that proved the myth. It proved the lie to be a lie. Because when he came forth in glory from that tomb, resurrected and made majestic again, he demonstrated just how far God's love would go in self-sacrifice, contrary to the lie, to redeem fallen humanity. It, put the, it, put, uh, it, explo- it, it exposed the myth of Satan. On the cross, Jesus answered Satan's charges, and he demonstrated that God is loving and just. Well, God's people, charmed by that love, concerned about God's honor, his end-time people will reveal His glory. That's what we are to reveal. His loving, self-sacrificing character. We are to reveal it to a self-centered, godless world. The earth is illuminated by the character of God when we do that. What a wonderful calling. I can't imagine a more noble cause to be involved in than to demonstrate the character, the glory of God, to others. That's awesome. 
Uh, that's certainly better than, than displaying your favorite brand of t-shirt or your favorite sports team, even if we like sports. Oh, show people God. Show people love. Show people His glory and His character. That's a noble calling. Moses had asked God to show him His glory back in Exodus 33, and God replied with, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And so in addition to physically showing himself, just a portion of his backside, it's all sinful uh, humanity could behold, God declared himself. Because when he says, my goodness is going to pass before you, he then goes on to say, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and justice and just, forgiving the sinner. Uh, he declared his character and he equated that with his glory because God's goodness is his character. At the end time, the Holy Spirit will be poured out in unprecedented power. The gospel will rapidly be spread to the ends of the earth, and God's people will be filled, and the earth then will be filled with the glory of God when we are so completely overwhelmed with his love when we so totally comprehend its depth and so fully grasp how amazing that grace is that our characters are changed by that redeeming love. When we exemplify that, then the earth is filled with the glory of God. As the Apostle John declares in 1 John 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. There are a lot of titles that people strive for today. I would encourage every one of us to strive for this child, or for this title, a child of God, a son or a daughter of the Most High. Revealing His love in our personal lives reveals His glory, His character. Ellen White says this uh, in January 28 of 1893. <coughs> The message of Christ's righteousness is to sound from one end of the earth to the other. The message of Christ's righteousness is to sound from one end of the earth to the other. That's the proclamation of the gospel. This is the glory of God which closes the work of the third angel. It's so connected to the messages that we have been studying, you cannot divorce them. So let us ask, where are we in the stream of time? Where are we in the great panorama of last day events? When you read through the books of Daniel and Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel even has connections to today. If you look through Revelation and what Paul talks about in, in Thessalonians 1 and 2, about the end times, what Peter talks about, John calling out the Antichrist, all of those macro discussions about the end times. Where are we? Where are we in the march of history? Well, my friends, we are poised on the verge of a religious, political, and an economic union. Uh, this union uh, is one that is unholy, it is unsanctified of God, because inevitably or ultimately it will be used to persecute God's people. 
this unholy union of religion, politics, and economics will be used to bring God's people to heal. That's where we are, and I do believe that we are on the verge of it. I, I do believe, and we've presented some evidence to support this, that a lot of the groundwork is being laid for, again, I believe, rapid movements in this direction. The accumulated figures of sin are rapidly reaching their limit in God's record book. Uh, his grace lasts long towards this earth, and, and I believe our sins are just piling high exponentially today. It's, it's rather startling. God is preparing a people to proclaim the marvels of his grace, the greatness of his love, the goodness of his character, the righteousness of his law, and the beauty of his truth. Bathed in his righteousness, God's people are justified by his grace and sanctified through his power. They love his truth, live his truth, and then we proclaim his truth. That's what God's people do, and he is preparing us for that today. Can we say, like Paul, for me, to live is Christ. For me, to count all things but loss for Christ. Christ is our all in all. Do you care not for earthly fame or human accolades? Position, prestige, and earthly praise, does it mean little to you? Is this your catchphrase, if you will? For me, to live is Christ. Are you empowered by his spirit? Do you proclaim his love and share his grace? Well, the earth will then be lighted with the glory, the character of God, when this is your battle cry. For me, to live is Christ. The Holy Spirit is poured out in latter rain power. Hearts are touched. Lives are changed. The world is reached and Jesus comes again. I look forward to that day. I do. Uh, the title for tonight's presentation is just Don't Worry, Look to Jesus. Uh, it's very simple and it's very true. Uh, we aren't going to go into all of everything that proves that Jesus is going to come back and the ample evidence in the Bible. It's so saturated with it. Uh, I would encourage you to study on your own, but Jesus is coming back soon and we should be prepared for it. Look to him focus on him, and a lot of the other cares will start to fade out of the periphery. It's very true. The story goes like this. Many years ago, Lord Cecil, a first cousin of the late Queen Victoria, was converted to Christ. His life was dramatically changed, as many lives are after being converted to a faith in Jesus Christ. He now had a burning passion to share the Christ who had done so much for him. Has Christ done so much for you? It's worth asking. Lord Cecil's one desire was to preach the gospel. He traveled to North America. He spent much of his time in Canada. He shared the love of Christ everywhere he went, in large cities, in remote villages, among farmers, in the lumber camps, and in quiet seaside towns. He was a man who knew what he wanted to do, and everywhere he went, he did it. Let me tell you about Jesus. 
Lord Cecil tells the story of one day passing the house of a man whom, who, whom he knew was once a Christian but had seriously drifted away from Christ. Maybe we know someone like that. Maybe we are someone like that or have been. It's a relatable story for many, many people. Lord Cecil saw the man at his woodpile industriously chopping wood for his cook stove. Knowing the man to be a backslider, one who had once been a faithful witness for his Savior, but now was no longer attending church, Lord Cecil paused and shouted to him a simple sermon. The Lord is coming, brother. The Lord is coming. He said no more, and he continued walking. A simple sermon. Well, the admonition, the Lord is coming, burned its way into that man's soul. The words reached the core of his being. Like a two-edged sword, it pierced his heart. His conscience smote him. These words echoed again and again in his mind. The Lord is coming. It seemed he could not forget them. That urgent appeal from God's servant that the coming of the Lord was near so impressed the man that he recommitted his life to Christ and he returned to church. Living in the light of the second coming of Christ is powerful and it changes lives. My friends, the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. Friend, the Lord is coming. Are you ready for his return? Are you ready for that day when Jesus will stream down the corridors of heaven, splitting open the eastern sky, riding on a cloud of angels, singing his praise, this time not as a lamb to the slaughter, but as a king conquering and victorious, glorified not bloodied. He is coming to take his own back home. Will you be found among them? Look to Jesus, my friends. Are you ready for the day when the earth will be lightened with the glory of God? Do you want to help in lightening the earth with the glory of God? This world is on a collision course and there is only one hope. The hope of the coming of Jesus. We look forward to that day, and I pray that as we do, you don't worry, but you look to Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these encouraging words. We thank you that even though there seems to be so much chaos and noise all around us, we can find solace in you. So, Lord, I pray for that peace from on high. I pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit. I pray that we, as your people, will be prepared for your soon return so that we look at you with open and welcoming arms, not something uh, to fear, certainly not a day that should catch us unawares. Lord, may we be faithful to you through to the end, and may we also, in our own way, Proclaim the Lord is coming to any who would hear. This we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. That does conclude our series. I want to thank you for attending. We've had some, I think, I think several of us have made every one. That's very good. If I had gold stars, I don't. I told you we would have a Q&A time. Um, there might be a possibility of someone looking online. If, if anyone is watching us live, you can type into the chat box uh, a question, and, and we'll do our best to, to read it out and include it. Um, I wanted to kick us off with something. I wanted to kick us off with a verse that comes right after the passage that we've been studying. Most people, when they talk about Revela- uh, the, the three angels' messages, they talk about Revelation 14, verses 6 to 12. Ah, rightfully so. It's a great place to end. It kind of leads right up to it. It's kind of a crescendo. It's the patience of the saints, those who, who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, uh, and so on. It's, it's a beautiful way of doing it. I like to also include in that uh, verse 13. Uh, I want to lead into it by saying that... Um, I really don't know why very many people preach on it. Maybe you've read it and you've wondered about it. Maybe you've looked at it and you said, I don't, I don't really know what to think about it. So I want to give it a, a minute or two's consideration. All right? It reads like this, and I heard a voice from heaven. This is after, immediately after. Here is the patience or the endurance of the saints, those that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Okay? Right after that, we have, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Uh, I came to that one day, and and I've read it several times, and usually I just kind of skip past it. Um, For the most part, if you are reading a three angels message, you just get to 12, and you're like, I'm done. But this comes right on the heels of, here's the description of God's saints, and then it's, and then it's blessed are those who die. Yeah, right there. Blessed are, are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Well, that seems like an interesting thing to follow after. Here are the saints who do all of these things. Uh, here's why I think it is there. <coughs> John is writing at a time shortly after Paul was addressing concerns. Uh, Revelation was most likely the last book of the Bible ever written. Uh, it was probably written around 100 A.D.-ish, right before the Apostle John uh, died. Um, before that, Paul had all of his writings. Well, in one of Paul's uh, epistles, he, he talks about, he talks to the people, he writes to the church, and they are obviously concerned with loved ones dying. And he goes, well, take heart, hold on, and then he talks about the resurrection, right? That's the context. Hold on, you don't have to lose heart, you are not ignorant of what happens when people die because the resurrection, all right? There will come a day where we'll all be reunited and caught up in the air, and those, if, if you live until Jesus comes back, you're not going to go ahead of your dead loved ones. We all get to go together. Uh, that's, that's the Aaron Trelfa uh, paraphrase. You know, John is probably dealing with something similar a couple of years after Paul, where people are still maybe concerned, one, Jesus hadn't come back. Uh, They believed in the early church that in that singular generation, Jesus was going to go to heaven, maybe hang out for a year or five or ten, 
and come right back. Uh, the Bible writes about Christ's return as imminent and also be patient for it. Uh, they focused on the imminence of it, uh, and, and they believed that to be now, my generation. Uh, they also believed that, that there was a little bit of Greek under, uh, misunderstanding with things, that uh, there wasn't perhaps a resurrection. Paul handled that. John writes, you know, at the, at the you know, ending of the first century A.D., and I'm sure some Christians were still concerned that their loved ones were dying and Jesus hadn't come back. What is going on, John? Uh, so he writes, after the description of the saints, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. In other words, it is sad when we lose a loved one. But if someone dies with a faith of Jesus, uh, that won't be the last time we get to see them. That faith follows them. God remembers them in the grave. He knows them by name. And those deeds, if you will, the, keeping, the deeds being the keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, those two things would be counted as deeds. That follows them through time, however long time takes to pass, and then Jesus comes back and they get resurrected. Uh, I, have, I have heard it said before that God in his mercy is going to allow some saints of his to fall asleep in death uh, so that they don't have to go through the tough persecution times of the end. That it's gracious of God to, to let his loved ones die the death of sleep, knowing that he knows them by name, that their faith stays with them through the grave, and they will be resurrected. That, the next thing they know, they're just going to see Jesus and angels and everyone shouting hallelujah, and here we go, and off you go. Um, that's, uh, you know, we have, this, we have sometimes this notion that we bend all of our energies in keeping people alive and alive and alive and alive. Um, I think sometimes we lose the nobility or the, the possible uh, nobility in, in giving them a gracious death. Uh, sometimes it's better to just allow someone to die, keeping this part in mind. Uh, because when, when a heavenly angel says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, why should I look to violate that? Um, I've kind of been convicted of that. Now, that's not to say that we're looking to, we don't want it to end prematurely, we're not saying that, but we are keeping things in the context of how Scripture tells us to treat death. Uh, it is very sad. Uh, we don't mean to diminish the sadness of losing a loved one. Uh, I went through that uh, just this last year when, when my last grandfather passed away. Uh, so I, I don't have a grandparent alive anymore. Uh, that's a whole generation gone for me and my family. Uh, it was very sad. You know, we cried, we mourned, um, you know, we visited and we reminisced. Um, but this, is, this, this right here was the passage that I preached on for his memorial service. Um, because Paul also says that we should comfort one another with the words of the resurrection. So that's, I actually think we should give it a little bit more um, consideration than we do, perhaps, at the back end of these, these passages. Um, so I wanted to start off 
uh, the Q&A section with that. I'm going to turn it over now. Do we have anything? Don't have anything online? That's fine. Is there anyone here who has a question? Blessed are the ones that um, died from now on. Mm -hmm. Is also applied to the special resurrection. I heard something that I, I don't know if you know something about A it. special resurrection? Uh-huh. <coughs> uh, before Jesus comes, that <coughs> before he, he died, he's, mm -hmm. he told um, to the people that crucified him that this, um, that when he's going to come back for a second time, mm -hmm. they're going to see him again. Yes. So I heard um, some preacher says that this applied to that because it's supposed, according to the Bible, in the, the um, second, no, the, the first death, mm -hmm. in the first resurrection, I mean, is when Jesus is coming back, mm -hmm. right? But um, but uh, there's gonna be a special people that is gonna mm -hmm. resurrect a little bit before before he's coming mm -hmm. to fulfill that uh, that prophecy that Jesus said. I, okay, so we've heard that there is a, a special resurrection um, for some people. You've heard it applied to to the verse that we just discussed. Um, here's, I don't believe that right up front. I don't think that's the case. Here's why I don't think that's the case. Uh, the verse that we just studied says, blessed are those who die, you know, in the Lord, right? In other words, those would, those would be saints, okay? Jesus told, uh, told the Pharisees, those that, that went out of their way to condemn and crucify him, that you will see the son of man returning back, right? Coming in glory, right? Okay. Uh, that one could not imagine that the Pharisees who were the guiltiest of them all for crucifying the Son of God would then be called blessed in another part of the Bible, okay? The Bible talks about two resurrections. Uh, you, have, uh, you have a second, that's the one that's actually called a second, which Means you automatically apply first to the other ones. You have you have two main resurrections in the Bible. One are the righteous. That's the first resurrection. The righteous are raised to dead, and then they are in their glorified bodies, reunited with the living righteous. They are caught up together in the air, and then they join Jesus, and off they go. That's the first resurrection. The Bible then accounts for a thousand years, a millennia. Time will pass. We come back to earth with the new Jerusalem, and then you have the second resurrection. That would be for the wicked, the unrighteous. Uh, they are raised back to life to face their judgment, their reward, if you will, for having been wicked and pledging their allegiance to the enemy of souls rather than the life giver. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us how long time passes. I'm I actually believe that some time passes between the second resurrection and the lake of fire, but that's when the final judgment scene occurs in the Bible. Uh, so two resurrections. Jesus, in a special way, does tell these Pharisees that they will get to see him return in glory. 
there's some debate over whether that means that they will see him and the new Jerusalem and everybody returning in glory at the second resurrection, or if it means that for that subset of people, because their sin was that egregious in condemning the Son of Man to die uh, and lying about him and so on, that they will be resurrected uh, as a part of the first resurrection, but not to glory, only to see Jesus glorified. Because the last time that they saw him, he was bleeding and bruised and, and so on. So in other words, uh, it, it would be a, a very specific and very unique circumstance for that small subset of humans um, because they just kept saying, you're not God, you're not God, you're not God, and they got everybody else to rally around that. And he'll go, well, you'll get to see. Um, but that, that seems to be restricted to that. It, it certainly wouldn't apply to this um, because they, that would not be a blessed, a blessed thing. Anything else? Paul says, no, he's got it all figured out. He's going to write books. All right. Is there anything, I mean, and it doesn't even have to be about these passages. Is there some other spiritual question or end time events things or so on and so forth? Yes. So I had a good friend pass away last week childhood friends with a bunch of friends with that and um, so through conversation um, and everybody's Catholic and every you know I kept hearing well he's in heaven and in all these things and I was so to the point where I didn't know when or what to say on this when I heard this and talked about it because it was talked about you know that was their comfort and um, so I was just wondering, when is a good time to actually discuss the state of the dead and what have you with some of my friends? Mm-hmm. I don't know what, what, you know, where to go from there. I never, I never counted this at my time where I am right now. Yeah. Um, and wanting to, I want to say this because we're, we're, um, we're talking to friends. I'm talking to friends I haven't even talked to in a while, and from, and it just seems like, it's almost like an opportunity that's in front of me to take that, this whole scenario further, beyond you know just what's happening now. Yeah. So, so do gen- I wait a while? Do I do this? Uh, what I mean, I don't even know. Generally speaking, the worst time to do an apologetic study on the state of the dead is when people are mourning the dead. That's the worst time to do it. Why? Because when, when the state of the dead, what happens when you die, the biblical teaching that people are resting in a sleep-like state, unconscious, Uh, not with a detached ethereal spirit that goes somewhere else, uh, continuing on in consciousness. But the Bible does say that that the dead know nothing. They don't return to their house. Their thoughts perish with them. Their emotions perish with them. God knows them, but that's it. Uh, That's how the Bible talks about it, that that we, we get to go to heaven 
at the first resurrection. That's what the Bible says. If you believe otherwise, though, if you do believe that when you die and you go to heaven, uh, because, I mean, really, how many people go to hell when they die? If you believe that your, your friend, your loved one, goes to heaven when he dies, and then you sit down and you say, let me tell you what the Bible says, just like that, you have yanked someone's best friend right out of heavenly halls and right into the dirt. When you are mourning a person and you're remembering and you're reflecting on them, that is not the time to do that. That takes a lot of reconfiguring a worldview, spiritually speaking. Uh, so we, we, on that category, if there are differences of understanding, we comfort one another in the faith that the person had in Jesus. We comfort one another in knowing that we will be reunited with them again in heaven. We take solace in some of the common ground that we do have, uh, and then you let some time pass, and then maybe bring it up in a future conversation. But in the moment is really one of the easiest ways to turn someone away from studying the Bible, is if they're mourning and they're working through it, and you go, well, on top of all of that, let me upend your worldview. Uh, and, and that's basically what that would be. Yeah, yeah. No, I, and I, I don't disagree. Um, and someone may come to that. Your friends may come to that. In the moment of mourning is what I'm saying, is, is when it's, it's usually not the time that they're going to be comforted. Yeah. 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 But I do see there's an opportunity in the near future, and I didn't want to try to add too much, but I didn't want to push anything. No, I would. I would. I would say. I would say. Uh, prayerfully ask that the Holy Spirit grant you the discernment and the opportunity to take advantage of the next moment when it comes. You don't have to wait forever. Seven years may be too long. Um, but the next time it rolls around, if you are praying each day, God, I want a chance to offer the hope that how the Bible says death is, uh, one, let the opportunity come, and then two, help me to take advantage of it in a loving and kind and gracious way. Uh, God, God will answer those kinds of prayers, um, so, so be praying for that. Pray and pray and pray is the best thing, but... For them to be talking to somebody out of town, you can't really communicate that well over the phone unless the spirit wants you to. Yeah. That is, I mean, I'm, you know, if your friends are, are, you know, maybe you need to get on, uh, on a Zoom or FaceTime, uh, that usually is a, a little bit better um, than, than just over the phone. But again, uh, if the opportunity presents itself and the Holy Spirit speaks, then, then by all means, uh, take advantage of it. I bet your good friends are in New York. Were they in New York? Some of them. Okay. What do you see going on there, Kevin? Yeah. Nothing. 
Oh no. It only paused it. Oh, okay. A pause is okay. Um, what is the church's belief for when the three angels' messages like have come to pass? Like we believe that they've already come to pass, but then the second angel says Babylon is fallen, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. it hasn't technically fallen yet. Right. So how? what's the timeline of the three? Right. So <clears throat> one in English is fallen is, is like a completed action. Okay. In the Greek, uh, you can phrase things um, where it's, uh, it is an action that has started and then it continues until completion. Um, so it would be like falling. Um, it, it's just not, it's not translated falling because it's probably not a preposition. Is it the preposition? No, it's not the preposition. I'm blanking on it. See, Greek was always tough for me. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the present continual um, way of writing things. Um, so you don't do ing in that sense. Uh, that takes a different form, um, but it still kind of denotes a starting and an ongoing. Um, traditionally, the Seventh-day Adventist church believes that the, the three angels' messages in their importance, in their end-time relevance, in their uniqueness for the Seventh-day Adventist church um, kind of kicked off in the early part of the 1800s. We believe that, that um, I believe it was the first angel we believe uh, you, don't, you don't pinpoint dates for these things, but we believe that the first angel was a part of the early Millerite movement because that really was a call back to a, a better understanding of what it is to, to fear God, to look for his return, to kind of like we need to get out of this, this relative lethargy that we are in and get going. Um, then shortly after the disappointment, when the Seventh-day Adventist church or when, when the people who were, yes, disappointed, but they were still trying to figure out things, all of a sudden the light about the Sabbath, the light about food reform, the light about what happens when you die, the light about uh, the sanctuary in heaven, the light about all of these other things. In other words, it's bringing clarity back into what had been confusion. That's the second angel. So we believe that roughly the timing of the second angel applies uh, to the back end of the Millerite movement and the early Adventist movement. Um, so that, that's kind of when a lot of those things that long believed and long understood, but also long forgotten, were coming right back to the forefront. Um, and then as we kept preaching on the Sabbath, as we kept preaching on some of these other doctrines, and, and we looked around and we're like, well, we've got blue laws on the books. Uh, you know, those blue laws, many states, many uh, local uh, areas still have Sunday blue laws that require businesses to be closed. You can't do laundry. You can't do this. You can't do that. They're just simply not enforced. Well, as our church saw those, uh, and, and really they had a lot of pushback on the Sabbath message early on, uh, the second, and the second angel's message really rolls into the third rather quickly and rather seamlessly. Because if you're saying that religious confusion is falling and we should get out of it, well, quickly, if you're, if you're pointing a finger and saying, don't do that, well, the institutions that are involved in that aren't going to generally take that kindly. Um, and so then they're going to say, well, you need to stop it, uh, hush down, be quiet, get in line, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so then that would be the third angel. 
Um, you know, we we believe that while they had kind of a rough starting point in that in the in the early mid 1800s, uh, they don't actually end until Christ comes back. Uh, that, that that is an ongoing process um, until Jesus returns. Uh, the reason why it's fairly unique to Seventh Day Adventism, uh, one, no one else preaches on it. Um, I, I've, I've talked to people out of a Church of Christ, out of Baptist, uh, Catholics certainly don't preach on it, Methodists don't preach on it. I don't know another denomination that preaches from these passages, certainly in the way that we do. Uh, not with the urgency, not with the detail, not with the personal application to God's people as a message in preparation for Christ's return. Very unique to Seventh-day Adventism. Um, does that answer your question? Okay. I heard it mentioned today. I'll, 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 oh, go ahead. I don't want to. With that in mind, thinking about this, the true Sabbath and how that's going to become clear to everybody in the world, what do you think that's going to look like for people who have worshiped on Sunday their entire life? It's hard for mm -hmm. me to kind of wrap my head around that idea that they're going to understand that they've been wrong mm -hmm. all of this time and how is that going I mean what is what do you think I mean it's just it's just conjecture I know but what what do you think it's going to look like because I have a lot of I have a lot of family that are Sunday keepers mm -hmm. I have a, I grew up a Sunday keeper so I just I'm curious as to what that light bulb moment is going to be yeah um because it's, I mean, we're guessing. We're guessing on a lot of this. Um, one reason why I believe it's so important we preach on it is because, one, there are millions of Seventh-day Adventists around the globe that are preaching on this. Uh, and, and then in addition to that, our radio waves are going everywhere, our pamphlets are going everywhere. It's getting to a point where ignorance is tough to claim. Um, in our own personal lives, the reason why I believe we should at least, uh, at least reference it, at least live it out faithfully, is because as we get closer to a time of, of a, a deciding point, and that deciding point is probably going to be when you start to hear chatter like, um, the world is such a hot mess, we can all get to, we, we should all have a rest day, it'll give the the environment a break, it'll help the families, they're a mess, it will help our mental psyche, everybody is depressed and, and anxious right now, it will do all of that, oh by the way, look at this, everybody's already, you know, keeping the same day, let's just do that. Um, when it comes to that, when you actually start to hear the legislation, um, I believe that's going to be an attention grabber for the individuals that have just kind of been hearing it all these years and not yet making a choice. Um, because then they will look at it and go, ah, uh, I remember so-and-so telling me that this might happen one day. And I know I kind of dismissed it, but here it is. Uh, you know, today, it, is, it sounds crazy to say uh, that, that some of these things are going to happen. Uh, Five years ago, three years ago, it sounded crazy to suggest that because of a virus, everyone was going to be forced to stay home. Three years ago, 
that was crazy talk, that the government was just going to make you stay home over a pandemic. We've had pandemics. No one was ever forced to stay home before like that, you know, from sea to shining sea. Uh, now we know what happens. Uh, so, so, I mean, that's really not a big surprise anymore if, if, if people want to suggest it. Um, right now, it sounds like it could be crazy to, to think, uh, you know, worship could be forced. Um, but like I proposed in, in a previous message, if they can make you stay home to worship, why can't they also make you go on that day to worship? Um, I mean, they've, they've already demonstrated that they will enforce a type of worship. All we've got to do is expand that into the next arena. Um, I don't, and and, and I, I believe that, that, that it's going to come. And that basically the mark of the beast is uh, the culminating focal point of decision. That's what it is. Because when a legislation is passed, people have to choose. Uh, do I keep with the, legisla the legislation because they say so? Or do I recognize that it violates a freedom of conscience? And I need to look at this a little bit more. Why are they asking me to violate a freedom of conscience? Uh, if, all you, if all you do is ask the question, why are they asking me to violate this? Then you might be led into something else. I just encourage people to ask the question sometimes. Uh, and, and, and again, if we are faithfully sharing that message, someone's going to go, hey, I've heard this before. I've tucked this on the back burner, but it seems to, seems to be coming up. Uh, we've got the microphone here, and then I think I saw a hand here, and then we'll go backwards, okay? So we'll go in that order. So just keeping with that topic, uh, you know, we all have <clears throat> friends and family that, that we know that, you know, are, are Sunday keepers. Uh, a lot of folks I know, family included, are Catholics. Um, you know, you, you just said there at the end that, that there's going to be a, a point where there's legislation put in place that you're going to be forced mm -hmm. to, you know, to, to keep Sunday or, or, or whatnot. And, and at that point, the decision needs to be made or you need to ask questions or, or whatever, and, and the mark of the beast comes into play there. Okay, let, right now, maybe there are legislation, but nobody keeps it or, you know, it's very loosely kept. Um, but, you know, I guess my question is, you know, folks that are, are, are keeping Sunday or, you know, use of this tradition that they've known their whole mm -hmm. life, maybe have heard about the Sabbath, right? You know, I, I'm thinking my family, they know s something about the Sabbath because of us. Uh, they may not know it all, right? Some may. Some folks that we've had deep discussions with may know about the Sabbath and mm -hmm. for whatever reason haven't chosen to follow the Sabbath or, you know, just stayed with their tradition that they're used to their whole life. My question there is, is the mark of the beast in play there? So the mark of the beast is not in play right now. Um, I, I firmly, unequivocally, uh, believe that to be the case. Um, right now in the United States, uh, you can freely go on Sunday through Saturday, whichever day uh, you want to worship. You can claim that as your day of worship, and you can go, and you're allowed to do so. Um, so, so no, you know, that, that's not the, the point that we're at right now. Um, 
people who are following in their traditions, um, what we understand is if you are aware of a truth and you choose to ignore the truth, the longer you ignore it, the less sensitive you become to it, right? That's why we encourage to regularly kind of bring it up uh, because each time you bring it up, that reintroduces it. We don't have to be rude about this, but in a kind way, if we are bringing it up or if we are demonstrating faithfully, each time we do that, that places it right in front of a person, at least as an FYI, which means that as time passes and things get much more difficult than they are right now, we prayerfully hope that they will remember each of those moments we placed it in front of them. That's what we, that's what we remember. Um, <clears throat> the reason why, and, and here's, the mark of the beast as a deciding moment is not for, uh, I would say it's not for people like you and I. Right now, for those of us who are sitting here and we are listening to these things and maybe we have already pledged ourselves to faithful worship of the Creator God, the mark of the beast is not going to be that fine. We will have gotten to that point, and we shouldn't be (laughs) making our decision then. Right now, we're making our decisions, and then we're trying to strengthen our faith in those decisions. That's the best process. Uh, When I talk about that will be like a culminating deciding point will be for people who are still just kind kind of just going about their days. They're going through the motions. They're doing their traditions. Maybe they've listened. Maybe they've studied. Maybe they've dug into it. And they go, well, maybe, you know, not for today. Um, This seems that the mark of the beast as as a final deciding point is for people like that. Yeah, there aren't aren't any consequences. The The only consequence that I would see right now is you do slowly start to callous. Uh, you callous yourself against the Spirit's prompting. Each time that biblical truth is set before you, and, and right now we're using the Sabbath as the example, but fill in the blank with any other biblical truth. Each time the truth is laid before us, and we go, eh, I get it, but not today. We, we callous ourselves just a little bit. Um, that's why when we, when we talked this morning about um, the slow compromises that get us to a point of failing, uh, the devil rarely hits us with the largest, big. we are not offering up, you know, living people before a statue of Baphomet the first day as a, as a, as a temptation. Uh, you know, we may never get there, but the devil doesn't care. You know, he cares that we give up something, no matter how small it is, because that does callous us to the Holy Spirit's promptings. Um, so that's, it is, it is tough, and I've got family. You know, I would love for some of my family to come around to things, uh, to, to what I, of course, accept as Bible truth. I wouldn't be the pastor in an Adventist church otherwise. But I accept it. I would love for them to. Um, one, it's true. Uh, two, I do believe that it is more freeing than some of the alternative conclusions, the alternative beliefs. Uh, three, I do believe that it gives us greater comfort in the tough times, like when someone dies. I, I do accept all of that. Um, but how I've talked to my friends and, and to my family members is I look for ways to lay it out so they can't claim ignorance 
so maybe it gives them something that they can reflect on and choose. Uh, maybe they'll come back and they'll ask more. Um, and I've got some family members where that just simply started with, hey, Seventh-day Adventists are not weirdos. <laughs> we just, we study the Bible and we have slightly different conclusions, but I also have a great deal of respect for uh, Methodists and, and some Catholics, and I, I do. Um, so I don't know, I mean, that was a long-winded way around. Did that answer your question? Absolutely. That, that can see, be some of the most powerful apologetics, if you will, is not to sit down and go, let me give you the ABCs of this particular doctrine. Um, because first and foremost, we are called to demonstrate God's character to the world. Well, what is his character? Love, grace, mercy, long-suffering, kindness, gentleness, meekness, etc. Uh, if, if all you do is look at uh, the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, you will not find um, PhD-level scholarly-type studies and proving people wrong. Uh, you will find God's character displayed in His people to show to others. Uh, that will do more if that is your starting point, your middle point, your ending point, and everything else just kind of gets built on it. Um, absolutely correct. I've, I'm, I'm semi-familiar with that quote. Again, I don't remember exactly, but, um, but there's a lot of truth to that. It, you know, you can say all the things, and in fact, right now, there's a, there's a lot of scandal in many of, of our country's biggest churches with our prom most prominent speakers because on the platform uh, or even in their studies and in their books, they said all the right things, and then they don't live godly lives. Um, they are caught up in fraud or unfaithfulness or, uh, you know, something of, of that. Um, and so then, then people go, well, how can I even listen to the words they have to say? Um, if it were the other way around, maybe you're not the most eloquent speaker, but you live a godly life, uh, that's the best sermon someone can give. I know we had, we had one back there. Well... It's not really a question. It was just a comment. Um, mm -hmm. I have the same uh, question many times before. What, what um, Grace says, said, uh, but uh, I think so that um, reading uh, the spirit of prophecy, we need to trust in the Lord and that it's going to come the letter rain. Mm -hmm. And when that happened, I think so. Um, God is gonna give us the the not the well not the power by ourselves, but His power. Mm -hmm. So the people can see Jesus 
in us. And that is what is going to convert people of the truth. Because so far, if you um, ask me what I'm experiencing in, in, at work, there's people from many denominations. And what it, for all the things that they're going on, so <laughs> one day I arrived to the break room, and I just throw the question, do you think that Jesus is coming soon? Mm-hmm. And all of them believe that Jesus is really coming soon. Mm. Before it was just a seven-day Adventist, but now people from other denominations and even people that they don't believe in God, they know that something is something is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And um, the spirit of prophecy even mentioned that. So uh, the same than the things are going on, I think so. We don't get yet to the probation day, but um, I think so. The Lord is to start talking to the hearts of the people. Mm-hmm. And if now is not the end, the time that we're living now is not the yeah. end. We're not making, like you said, a, a choice in, uh, right now. I mean, that can bring consequences uh but we're come i mean it's coming that day and the lord is preparing his people yeah so our only refuge is trusting god and like you say living a godly life and allows that the holy spirit be poured over us when the time it it comes Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And because um, the people is going to turn to Jesus because they're going to see in the God's people the Christ character. Yeah. So the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to convert the others for the truth. Only we need to pray for them. If maybe we cannot talk to some of them. I have family. Who doesn't have a family that is is not Catholic, is Catholic or is from another denominations. And for me, it's like, Lord, how can I reach them? I have a, a, a cousin that she is Catholic, but at the same time, it's very, uh, it's like a new age, uh, this, mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. blended of all of that, which I think is worse because she believes really that we are starting another era that is going to bring a lot of peace and a better life. And so, and at the same time, she believes in the Mary, Mary, Mm -hmm. the Virgin Mary. And so it's like, how can I reach her, Lord, Lord, you know? Yeah. But, I the Lord put in my heart just to pray for her, pray for her, and share whatever you think that is not gonna hurt the feelings of the other people, but tell them about the the love of God and yeah. there's there's and show them. I mean, um, one the Bible tells us that we need to worry about those that that you know clamor for peace or say that peace is coming because uh, they will say peace, peace, and then sudden destruction. Uh, that's what the Bible says. Uh, there, there are times, and this is where we pray for the discernment. There are times 
the, the first general rule is we are kind and we are gracious and we are unoffensive and, and all these other things. Uh, you pray that the Holy Spirit helps you because there, there, there can be the danger of being too kind. Um, if, for example, uh, you knew that there was a road that had been washed out uh, and you had already seen one car drive off of it, you might do all you can, screaming, shouting, uh, spike strips to blow tires. Uh, you might be willing to, to do whatever it takes to stop the next car from going off, even at the risk of harming someone's feelings. Uh, there are times when we need to be, when, and you pray for these moments, but sometimes you look at someone and you go, you know the truth. Why aren't we picking it? You know, why do we continue to stay in the way that we have been even though you know better? Uh, and sometimes that's an, that's an appropriate thing. And again, you, you go back and you, you pray about those times because if you do that too soon or in the wrong time, then you can, someone will just instantly plug their ears and, and you won't ever have that audience again. Um, I want to I make one, one final comment, um, and then if there's a, a quick question, I, will, I would take it. But I want to I remark on this just for a moment. Um, sometimes people look around the world and they say, aha, here it is that's ushering in the last movements. Uh, after Katrina, people said, there we go, this is the worst storm in New Orleans. And, and so we get big hurricanes that come up into the Gulf. Uh, they obviously hadn't done the levees correctly. Um, I actually think it's human foolishness to build a city below <laughs> below sea level and then just kind of hang out there for all those years. Uh, you're kind of asking for trouble, uh, you know. And and time kind of passed. Uh, after 9/11, people also said, "Here we go. We're ushering in World War III. This is going to bring an apocalypse, and then Jesus is coming, et cetera, et cetera." Well, obviously that. That, that manifested itself in a type of war, kind of a new type of war, uh, the war on terror. Um, you know, we have these, these various occurrences, earthquakes, uh, the pandemic, when, when COVID started to, was, was really kind of going in spring of 2020. Um, my goodness, how many questions probably came to, to various institutions that said, is this one of the last plagues of the Bible? Uh, the short answer is no. Uh, that COVID was not. Um, it was a bad virus. Sadly, it killed far too many people. Um, I'm glad we're, we're at a different portion of dealing with this virus. Um, but in a nutshell, no, it was not one of the last plagues. Uh, the Bible tells us that we should be looking for, Jesus tells us uh, in, in Matthew 24, you look for wars and rumors of wars, political strife, nation fighting against nation. You look for natural disasters, um, pestilences, eh, plagues. Uh, you look for famines. Right now we've got, we've got famines all over the globe, incredible droughts out west. Uh, they are talking now about a, a very real food shortage uh, coming on the near horizon because of the war in Ukraine. Uh, it's one of the major bread producers or grain producers in the world right around there. That, that's tough. It's you know, getting things in and out. They need their resources. They're probably not exporting right now. Uh, and, and that with the other... You know, people, people ask, you know, with Putin's aggression in, uh, in Ukraine, he's talking about rebuilding the Soviet Union. Uh, they're kind of reinvigorating talk that we heard a lot 
during the Cold War. You know, communism versus the West. This is ushering in World War III and, and that great battle of Armageddon. And, well, then the curtain fell and all of those, those cries kind of disappeared. Well, they're being rekindled again. You know, the, the Bible talks about the kings of the north and the kings of the south and how they will fight against God's people. And, and, and sometimes, sometimes men and women in desperation trying to find a name to attach to what the Bible clearly has in symbols. Uh, we point a finger at Putin and we go, there's the king of the north, and he's going to usher in uh, what the Bible talks about. Or if we, we look at Ian, you know, Ian, uh, for the state of Florida, boy, they haven't had a major hurricane like this in a long, long time. Uh, Florida's had a very quiet hurricane season for at least three or four years. Um, I think the last two years, they really didn't have anything at all come across that state. And then Ian comes through. Well, people are looking. People are, are uh, sometimes, I believe, in desperation, looking to put a name on something from the Bible. Uh, when we are reading through prophecy, we need to understand that God isn't giving us a lot of the micro details in these things. That's why as we've been doing these presentations, we've plugged in some things, quotes, references, statistics. I have shared when I've that started to kind of blur the line between what we know and my opinion, um, because I, I have some opinion on where I think some cogs are starting to come together. Um, but I would caution us uh, to, to not jump to uh, naming, naming names too quickly. Uh, when the Bible is talking about the king of the north and the king of the south, uh, we remember anciently what that meant. The king of the south, that was the biggest threat to Israel, was Egypt. Egypt in Bible prophecy, Egypt in terms of symbolism, has long meant spiritual paganism, uh, spiritualism, if you will. Uh, the the unbiblical belief of what happens when you die. Uh, the different stages to heavens and the different stages to hells and disembodied spirits and offering your babies up to idols. And spiritualism is often represented with Egypt, the king of the south. The king of the north is where Babylon invaded uh, Israel to carry them into captivity. There's a giant, trying to have to reverse this, on this side of Israel, there's a big desert. Babylon, in order to invade Israel, had to go over the desert and down south from the north. Uh, that's where they invaded. So the king of the north is a, is a common reference to Babylon. Well, Babylon in prophecy, as we've studied, is religious confusion, different than spiritualism. If the one is occultic paganism, the other one would be confused Christianity, if you will. Uh, where they are wrong on the conclusions from the Bible. Uh, and, and the truth and error is mixed. And that is kind of confusing and, and perverting uh, Christianity around the globe. So we should be looking for these macro movements. And maybe we'll see some micro details as we go along. Uh, but I would add uh, a little bit of caution that we don't jump to these conclusions too quickly. Uh, we have hurricanes. We've had hurricanes. 
long before the 21st century. We had hurricanes that probably came off of the coast of Africa or off of north of South America, and it went into the Caribbean and it came up into the U.S. Uh, that's been going on for a long time. Uh, just because Ian happened and it was the first one of this kind in a while doesn't mean it was the first one ever for the state of Florida. Just because COVID was, was big and we had some unprecedented responses to it doesn't mean it was the first pandemic ever. And the Bible tells us we should be seeing these things. As we see them, this is what Jesus says. As we see them, we should not be looking to, to put a finger on that. We should be looking at these things and then going, how am I prepared for his return? And then how am I helping others be prepared for his return? If you end up uh, figuring everything out about what the enemy is doing, but you are unprepared, that's a sad day for you. It is so much more important that you are prepared and you are not distracted with other things uh, to the expense of your preparedness. You know, don't, don't, don't choose to be naive about things, but also don't get caught up in the weeds. Does that make sense? Uh, I, I like to caution that because I, I think Seventh-day Adventists in a special way uh, like to look at prophecy and, and just go, I can figure it out. This is this, and this person is that. Um, and next thing you know, they are spending all of their hours trying to, trying to prove that Putin is the king of the north. Um, if Putin dies tomorrow, all of a sudden that theory uh, makes other people not trust you. That's why I, I add some caution as we study prophecy. If you know it, okay. Um, otherwise, let's make sure that we are sticking with uh, being prepared by keeping our, our eyes on Jesus. Is there one short final question? If not, we are done. Thank you if anyone is watching online or will soon be watching. We're glad you could join us. This is our last presentation for Three Angels, One Message. May you be richly blessed. May y'all be richly blessed. And I hope to see you again someday very soon. Have a good night.